Welcome to episode 16 of the G2 on 5G. It's the latest inside scoop on everything 5G. We cover six topics in about 15 minutes and it's brought to you by More Insights and Strategy. I'm Will Townsend and joining me again this week is fellow analyst, Anshul Sag. Let's get started. But before we do, Anshul, why don't you flash a picture up? Um, I spent the uh, yesterday and today with my two uh, college age daughters and just to show the audience my dedication to the podcast, this picture was taken uh, on top of Enchanted Rock, which is a beautiful nature preserve about an hour and a half outside of uh, Texas. And the views are amazing. And so wanted to share that with everyone and rushed back in time so that we could record this uh, podcast. You're so, still wearing the hat. <laughs> and I'm still wearing that, you know, God bless Texas, hook them horns. So let's get started. And on this first topic, Angela and I are going to kind of tag team it. But uh, there was an announcement from the White House on August 10th. They call it a fact sheet. And it wrapped up several different elements into one big sort of bravado announcement. And really what it was pointed towards was the fact that uh, the US government is going to free up um, the very valuable mid-band spectrum, do that on a global basis to accelerate 5G deployment, and offer that through the FCC auction. Angel's going to talk a little bit more about it, but I thought it was interesting the way the whitehouse.gov packaged this up because they spoke to that. Then they also addressed uh, the deregulation that's been occurring, um, you know, tax incentives to drive 5G deployment, as well as a lot of the deregulation. So uh, I find it interesting in an election year uh, how the White House packaged that up. But um, I shared my insights on Twitter. I think it's a good thing. Um, we talk a lot about T-Mobile and how they have a very wide spectrum footprint. We call it the layer cake, low, mid, and high band. Um, some of their competitors uh, in the tier one space uh, are missing sort of that critical mid band. And, and why it's critical is that mid band uh, delivers a great balance of, of propagation and distance and performance. So I think this is a very positive thing, but Angela, why don't you go a little bit deeper into your analysis on, on what, what this really means for operators and service providers? So I think, first of all, they're freeing up 100 megahertz of spectrum mm -hmm. uh, in the 3.4 to 3.5 band, um, which is as mid-band as it gets. Um, a lot of countries are actually freeing up, already have freed up that band for mid-band. So mm -hmm. it's kind of like a globally harmonized mid-band for 5G. Um, so that's a good thing for sure. Um, also, this is a 100 megahertz block in addition to with being freed up from CBRS and C-band. Um, so it's going to actually accumulate um, to a, an aggregate of 530 megahertz mm -hmm. of mid-band spectrum available, which is a lot um, because honestly, there's a lot of stuff that's already in that space and freeing up that much spectrum is gonna be very valuable. Um, obviously there's gonna be some sharing rules that are gonna have to be implemented um, in certain areas um, to not impede certain uh, military um, frequencies or telecommunications. Um, but, but the reality is, is that um, in order to have the coverage um, that we are used to, but also getting those gigabit 5G speeds, you need mid-band. You can't mm -hmm. accomplish, it with, accomplish it with low band um, because you need, you know, large chunks of bandwidth in order to get you know a gig and 20 megahertz blocks are not going to cut it anymore 
Um, so, you know, that's part of the reason why T-Mobile's purchase Sprint was such a big deal because they bought themselves almost 200 megahertz of an advanced spectrum. Mm -hmm. Granted, it is 2.5, so it will it will carry further than 3.5 will. Um, so they don't need to have as, as dense of a deployment. Um, but I actually think what's going to be very interesting is um, the two operators that need mid-band the most, which are Verizon and AT&T, sure. do not have the network density that they need to make that a blanket coverage, um, you know, 5G network. So they're going to have to intensify further. Right. Um, obviously, they're not going to have to densify as much as if they had stuck with just millimeter wave, which right. was kind of how they initially launched their 5G networks. Mm -hmm. uh, but they absolutely need mid-band. Um, and I know that Verizon's already been very aggressive in acquiring mid-band. So I think AT&T is obviously going to be a big bidder here. Right. Um, for this spectrum, but I also think there are going to be other bidders like Dish, who's trying to build out their network. Yeah. Um, and I, but I don't think they get any mid band because they mostly got low band. Low band from T-Mobile. Yeah. And, um, yeah. You touched on CBRS. Now, my understanding, right, is that this is going to be a traditional FCC auction, right? So it's not going to be through the CBRS. Right. It's on it's side. a it's a traditional auction. Got it. Um, but all of the spectrum will be available to operators. Right. Um, and th they're aggregating all of the spectrum that's available for 5G that isn't implemented yet right. as part of that 530 megahertz um, aggregate number. Um, but realistically, you're right. They're going to have to bid on it, and it's going to cost a lot of money. And I yeah. don't see T-Mobile being a bidder, but I could see Comcast being a potential bidder because um, they're you know they're trying to build out their cell network. Um, yeah. We could see you know some licenses going to a um, like a U.S. cellular or um, you know, any other company looking to kind of build out a new network. But realistically, yeah. I think we kind of already know who the players are in the space. Right. And, uh, you know, I don't see anybody really being able to compete with AT&T or Verizon on, on a bidding board. No, I agree. Yeah, they've got the deep uh, war chests. And, uh, yeah, the interesting, you know, I think U.S. Cellular, they, they primarily serve as rural. That's been a big focus of the Trump administration, you know, and, and Chairman, you know, Pi as well. So it will be interesting to see how, you know, kind of things roll out. I mean, certainly this will be a big money, you know, maker and revenue generator for the federal government, but uh, it's all good. You know, I think it, it, it provides, you know, you know, additional, you know, capabilities, you know, with respect to mid-band spectrum, you know, for the AT&Ts of the world that, that are definitely lacking it. So let's shift to my second topic this week and Rakuten announced their two key financials. Um, no surprises, um, losses there as they continue to deploy out their, um, their network. Um, I did find it interesting, you know, one of the, the big key highlights they focused on was how they're deploying their RCP platform, which is the Rakuten communications platform. And they're claiming a CapEx reduction of up to 40% and OpEx reduction of up to 30%. And a lot of this is, you know, um, leveraging OpenRAN and you know I've you know I've weighed in on this and I've contributed you know to a Forbes article on the subject and certainly um, it's it's going to be very capex disruptive when you know you're virtualizing a lot of uh, the radio heads and that sort of thing but I'm still not sold on the fact that it's an opex reducer because when you introduce software uh, when you introduce more players into the ecosystem it drives complexity so I, I don't know do you have any other thoughts on that. Um, I saw as part of their earnings announcement that they were saying that they expect to have 70% of the Japanese population covered by March 2021. 
-hmm. and that they expect to have 96% covered by uh, summer of next year. So that's a very aggressive rollout. It is. They're expecting to have, yes, Japan is very dense, and yes, most of the population lives in very dense cities, um, but apparently that they've already deployed uh, 5,700 sites as of June, and they've got another 7,400 sites under contract. Um, so they're they're definitely um, moving more aggressively than they even had anticipated, yeah. um, because originally they said that they would cover 96% of the country by 2026. Right. So being able to do that five years earlier obviously is a, you know a big difference. Yeah. I think that 2026 number most likely did not incorporate their current disaggregated model. Mm -hmm. um, but I think with this new model that they've been deploying with, I think they can roll it out much more quickly. And it's going to be very interesting to see if they can actually cover that much of a country that quickly. Yeah, you know, and, and that's certainly one of the advantages of using, you know, an open RAN platform is that, you know, it brings agility. What's interesting, you know, and, and you were a part of this as well, Anshul, you know, the firm, we collectively wrote a series of six articles last summer on who the leaders were in 5G. And um, I looked at, you know, carriers and infrastructure, obviously I cover that, you cover end devices, VRAR, mixed reality. But, um, you know, Japan has been somewhat of a laggard with respect, you know, deploying, to deploying 5G in my opinion. So this would be interesting if, you know, and Rakuten has always made very bold claims. Their, their leadership is very bold. Um, but it'll be interesting if, if, if they can sort of put Japan back on the fast track. Absolutely. And their CEO is, you know, he's got all the energy in the universe to yeah. talk up their, 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 their model. Exactly. So yeah, time will tell. It'll be interesting. So let's shift to your second topic this week. And you wanted to share um, some information on Ericsson wins. And I've been following, you know, th this as well. But what are the details there? Well, it's basically that Ericsson has been making deals. And uh, they managed to secure essentially their hundredth network deal. Um, so they, they basically, you know, they've been the first operator um, infrastructure vendor to be, you know, rolling out with a lot of the 5G networks. Mm -hmm. um, so it's been a lot of them and Huawei and Nokia um, and even Samsung, but they have the overwhelming, you know, uh, number of networks that they've rolled out in. Um, and I think it helps them that they're in the U.S., um, as well as Europe and Asia. So they have global coverage. Um, you know, Huawei is, is struggling in that sense because they can't get into some countries. Um, mm -hmm. So that's limiting them. And then Nokia, because they've been a laggard, um, you know, doesn't have as many 5G deployments uh, as their other competitors do. So it makes sense that, you know, um, Ericsson would have signed their 100th deal. Um, it was actually with uh, the Slovenian telecom carrier, Telecom Slovenia. Um, on August 12th. Um, so that was kind of um, their, you know, 100th deal. Um, yeah. They said that they've already, and that, that, that 100 figure includes 58 publicly announced contracts and 56 live networks spanning five continents. Mm -hmm. So um, they've got global coverage. Um, you know, I think they're, they're pretty happy from what I've seen um, in terms of their momentum. Um, they did have a little bit of slowness last year, from what I recall. Mm -hmm. um, and I think, you know, COVID has been a, has been kind of a mixed bag for a lot of companies. Um, but I think considering everything, um, 100 deals is pretty good considering how early we are in deployment of 5G. 
Yeah, I agree. And I'm not surprised to see this because, you know, when, when you look at the other big competitors, you know, I always call it big infrastructure. Um, you know, and that includes obviously the, the companies you've mentioned, Samsung Networks, Huawei, and Nokia. Nokia has been somewhat distracted. They have a new CEO that's taking the helm. And so I think, you know, Ericsson may have taken advantage of a little bit of that fear, uncertainty, and doubt. Um, but it'll be interesting to see how things roll out with uh, with Nokia's new leadership. Um, like you mentioned, Huawei, you know, they, they are struggling. I'm going to talk about Huawei as my third topic in a moment. Um, given some of the, you know, uh, the restrictions that continue to go on um, most recently in the UK and certainly in the US. And uh, you're seeing other parts of the world get behind that as well. So, yeah. And so, you know, I, I feel like, you know, Ericsson's got a very solid portfolio. They've sort of reinvented themselves. They're very focused on software defined. They're not necessarily throwing themselves behind open RAN, but certainly, you know, from a virtualization perspective, leveraging AI, um, they, they've been a leader. So um, I'm, again, I'm not surprised to see that, but it'll be interesting to see how things continue to progress among these, uh, these big four. But so with that, let's shift to my third topic this week and it's Huawei, <clears throat> as I mentioned. And, uh, and I've talked about this before, you know, you know the entity listing <clears throat> was sort of the first step in the U.S. salvo um, with Huawei, and then that that proceeded to semiconductor in a presidential order that was signed um, a few months ago around prohibiting foundries that use uh, American semiconductor manufacturing equipment to supply foreign en entities, in particular Huawei and ZTE. And so this week, and, you know, we're and starting American to allies too. And, exactly. Yeah. And, and, uh, and, and so this week news came out that um, we're beginning to see some of the effects of that semiconductor blockade with Huawei. And in particular, TSMC, I mean, they're a huge fab based in Taiwan. Um, Huawei announced that they will be ceasing production of a key piece of silicon, it's the Kirin um, artificial intelligence uh, chipset. And from my perspective, I don't cover devices, you certainly do, so I'd love to hear some of your color on this, but I really have felt that that's been a key differentiator for the company integrating AI silicon. And they have, they've had a very ambitious goal of, of integrating AI silicon, custom silicon into all of their devices. So whether it's infrastructure for the enterprise service provider or devices, um, that's been a key differentiator for them. And so because Huawei only has design capability with its high silicon operation, they don't have fab capability they announced they're going to have to cancel, you know, the production because TSMC will no longer be able to supply them. So I believe long-term, and I've spoken to this, that, you know, Huawei is going to have to pivot and invest in, you know, the billions of dollars that are required to bring up a fab, but um, you're closer to the end devices. So I'd love to hear your perspective on this. So basically it's the Kirin, which is, the Kirin is their flagship smartphone processor. Right. Um, and, it's basically the what powers um, their flagship phones. Uh, and the thing is, is that the reason why it can't be produced elsewhere is because TSMC is the leading foundry in the world. Mm -hmm. And in order to produce that chip in, in the economical yield base that works for power performance, it needs to be manufactured at TSMC. Um, there are no alternatives. Um, yeah. They've, they've already invested in SMIC or SMIC, um, mm -hmm. which is a Chinese fab, 
Um, but they're not anywhere near where TSMC is. Sure. So for maybe some of um, Huawei's older chipsets, they could, um, but not for their leading stuff. Mm-hmm. So they're, they're going to have to lean on other chipset manufacturers to um, make this chip for them. Um, but the thing is, is that they could either buy a Qualcomm chipset, which is what Qualcomm has been trying to push for, supposedly, mm-hmm. um, which would be an American chip company, which I'm not sure the Trump administration would allow, um, yeah. which is why it's been kind of a questionable thing. Um, but they could also go to MediaTek and use their um, Dimensity 1000 chipset because mm-hmm. uh, MediaTek is a Taiwanese company. Um, and they aren't yet on that border, but they could be. Um, but they mostly sell two Chinese OEMs. Yeah. So, um, you know, this would kind of level the playing field between Huawei and a lot of their competitors, at mm-hmm. least on the chipset side, um, which would make things very interesting. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's it's an unfortunate position because, you know, Kirin um, is Huawei's own design based on ARM, you know, GPU and CPU. Um, and they've, you know, they've, they've had some interesting, uh, you know, designs there. But generally speaking, I would say it won't be a huge difference for them um, because they've, you know, their performance is kind of on par with a lot of other competitors. And actually, Huawei hasn't been updating some of their CPU cores, but the latest ones that ARM is offering. Hmm. So um, it's not as big of a loss as I think as some people would think, but it definitely okay. will affect their profitability yeah. and their margin um, yeah. because they're no longer manufacturing their own chip. Yeah. Yeah, it sounds like we have a slightly different opinion on it, but hey, that's that's the spice of life, right? So <laughs> it'll be interesting to see how things roll there. So let's move to your third topic. And um, you've got some information on, on T-Mobile and some... Um, some site statistics. Yeah, so like we mentioned in the previous podcast, um, and during their analyst um, count, I don't know what to call it, analyst briefing we had well, yeah. last week, they kind of told us that they're up, they're bringing up about a thousand, they're, they're they are already in planning to bring up a thousand 2.5 gigahertz sites per month. Um, but apparently that number is now increasing to 700 sites per week. And they want to bring it up to 800 sites per week. Um, and it seems like it's kind of a combination of both 600 and uh, 2.5. But really, what they're, ta- what they're really talking about now is 2.5, because 600, they've rolled out significantly, and it's already nationwide. Yeah. Um, and 2.5 is what's, you know, one, what they paid for. But two, it's also what's going to give them that multi-gig um, 5, 5G uh, you know, bandwidth. Right. Uh, so they're talking about rolling it out in in a mid fifty thousand range. In mm-hmm. that they will have about between you know around fifty five thousand two point five G sites. Obviously, oh. most of those are going to be refarmed, repurposed sprint sites. Sure. Um, but they're also going to obviously as well, you know, go bring up a bunch of new sites as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and they said that they are going to. Um, have a lot of this done over the next two and a half years, which is their plan. Um, But they really want to start, they really want to already take advantage of that spectrum aggressively next year. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, you know, I, I believe, you know, you kind of talk about the refarm and uh, 
certainly I think they'll count as they refarm these sprint sites, they'll count that in the numbers. Um, but prior to the merger, you know, I spent some time with John Saw, who will be on uh, our next episode, and you'll talk more about that at the end of the podcast here. But um, he was talking about the, you know, Sprint's use of the time of massive MIMO antennas that can be split to, to support both LTE and 5G. So I expect that'll, from an infrastructure perspective, that'll be part of the recipe and the plan there. Yeah, and the interesting thing is that um, it, it's, it's definitely something that will benefit the company because they're already dealing with a significant amount of load on the network from COVID-19. Mm -hmm. um, so having that 2.5 gives them so much more capacity that they didn't have before that it can actually free up some of the 600 megahertz spectrum and the other spectrum they're already using for, for 4G. Um, so I think it's going to be very interesting to see how quickly they're actually able to roll this out and whether or not they're really able to, you know, if they're going to hit that mid 50,000 figure right. by you know, 2024. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it's, you know, they're moving quickly. They've, they, so far, they've delivered on everything that they said they could do. Yeah, and I tell you, I, I call it, you know, um, going back to my product marketing days, um, we called it a rolling thunder campaign. And it seems like, you know, T-Mobile's been rolling the thunder over the last several weeks, right, with these, these different announcements, you know, yeah. financials and, you know, the SA deployment and, and now this. So they're not messing around. And I think I read no. something, you know, parent Deutsche Telekom, you know, Pop is pretty proud <laughs> of, well, yeah. uh, of their child in the U.S. So. I think also, if you think about it, um, they probably had planned most of this before the merger was approved. True. Because the merger took so long to approve. They had time to really put the, put the plan together. Exactly. Yeah. Really set the groundwork. And, and, you know, once that agreement was set, you know, they lit up a bunch of cities already. Yeah. And, you know, they just haven't stopped since. Like, that, the... They, they like lit that fuse and it just, just keeps mm -hmm. going. Yeah, yeah. That great observation, buddy. Well, hey, another great podcast this week. Why don't you take us home? Absolutely. So we hope our viewers and listeners found this week's topics interesting. If anyone out there would like to provide us uh, with insight on a topic that they would like us to cover that's around 5G on a future podcast, uh, please reach out to us on social media. Will is at WillTownTech and I'm at OnShellSog. We hope that you have a great weekend and please tune in again next week when we have T-Mobile's John Saw on the podcast.